This is from Paul. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word of the Lord. So the Apostle Paul, he wrote a lot of letters. I hate writing letters. I just am not good at it. I don't know what to say. It's such a task for me. And the same goes for cards. My poor husband, he will buy me a card. First of all, half the time, I don't even remember. It's our anniversary. I'm that woman. And so I make a card really quick, and I write, happy anniversary. I love you, Tara. But if I buy a card, I do give it time and effort and thought because it says what I don't have to say, right? That's the point. Why recreate the wheel? Well, Ray will buy me a card, and then he writes on the front, and he writes in the side, and he writes on the back, and mine says, I love you, Tara. It is what it is. Paul, though, always seemed to know what to say. Now, granted, he had a very close relationship with the Lord, and so that gave power to his letters and to his words, and I'm certain that that made his letter writing a bit easier. Now, Paul mostly wrote letters um, to some churches, and he had also a few individuals. For example, he wrote personal letters to Timothy and Titus and Philemon, and to churches such as Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Thessalonica, and what we hear from today, the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. It's a letter written to Christians, to that church within that city. And they had developed this church from just a small number over some time. Paul had visited this city a few times, um, and the church had just continued to grow, and to grow not just in number, but in love and in thanksgiving. Now, Philippi is a city that we uh, now know of was in modern-day Greece, and Paul had received this divine call. It was not in the plan. It wasn't this idea, and he sat around at a table and sketched out this idea and this plan of, I'm going to go here, and I'm going to see these people, and we're going to set this church up in this location, and it's going to run like this, and we're going to put these people in as elders and these as deacons, and it's going to be glorious. No. He was sleeping, and there was a vision. Acts 16 reads, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
The we and the us is Paul and Silas and Luke. And so they traveled there, not by plan, but by prompting. Philippi is a Roman colony. And in that city, there were very few Jews who resided there. And the Roman rule stated that a synagogue could not be started unless there were at least 10 Jews, Jewish men, who could start it. Well, there was no synagogue. And so Paul arrived, and he had to bypass his normal Sabbath routine. <gasps> right? <laughs> and what did he do? He didn't just sit down and do nothing. He went down to the river. And there were some Jews who had gathered to pray because they had no place of worship. There was a group of Jewish women there, down at the river, and so Paul began to speak to them. And one of those women, we learn, is Lydia, and she was a seller of purple fabrics. She was known to be quite wealthy, and she, through Paul, became a follower of Yahweh. The scriptures state that the Lord opened her heart to the truth. She and her entire household were baptized, and they opened their home to Paul and to other believers in Christ. Seeing such great fruit down by that river, the fruit of conversion, of baptism, of salvation, Paul, Silas, and Luke would make it a regular practice to head to the river, to preach the gospel to whoever would listen. I tell you these stories, and I'll tell you some more, because it gives a tale and an understanding of why Paul wrote this letter. You see, as he was there in Philippi, and as he would travel down to the river, there was always, it seemed, this woman. And she would follow him. She was a slave woman, and she was known to be a fortune teller. And it turns out that her fortune-telling gift was from a demon. And she would follow them as they walked, and as they would go by, she would cry out, These men are bond servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Well, that's true, right? It was true. But it was being advertised by a demon-speaking woman, and that's not really what they had in mind for their ministry. And after many of these kind of demon commercials over and over, Paul got a little annoyed and he commanded, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and the demon did. So the owners of that woman were not pleased, for they no longer are making money. So what do they do? They turn the tables on Paul and the others and they send them to jail. They said all sorts of things that were untrue and they get placed in bondage in jail. So there they sit, among this crowd of people in the prison. But the Lord continues to work, right? Had Paul created this whole charade of going to Philippi himself, well, at this point, it seems that all would have been lost, right? If you're out on the town and you're preaching the gospel and you end up in prison, typically we're like, well, that didn't go as planned, right? But it wasn't planned. It was God's leading. And the Lord is working wonders in Philippi. And so that night, Paul and, and Silas are singing praises. They're praying to the Lord. And there's an earthquake. And what happens? The chains are broken. They are no longer in bondage. Now, the jailer, he's a little concerned at this point, right? Because his responsibility is to keep these people in prison. And the rule was, if they escape, he has to take their place. 
Well, who wants that? So he's thinking that he's going to, you know, not, not stick around. But what Paul does is say, whoa, 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 no, look, look, we're still here. We didn't flee. We're still here, unbound, but we remain praying and worshiping our God. Well, what? What do I need to do? I don't understand. What do I need to do to be saved? The jailer cries out. And again, Paul is given the opportunity to share the gospel. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved, you and your household. And so the jailer, we read, and his entire household are baptized and they choose to follow the Lord. So upon his release from prison, Paul then visits and meets with Lydia and others. And he offered thanks. He gives encouragement for their acceptance and for their continued gathering in the name of the Lord. Many, many people responded to the gospel, and they became Christians in that city of Philippi. The church of Philippi was blessed. It was a church full of love and of commitment and grace. But not only that, Paul offered his thankfulness for their partnership in the gospel. The Philippians had not just received. They had continuously given back. They provided this tangible hope to their community and ultimately to the world. They sought to be this conduit through which the gospel could spread. So Paul, it's known, had traveled around, and it's thought that he has returned to Philippi on his journeys at least three times. He had developed these close and intentional relationships with these people who had created this church through God. At one point, we read in Corinthians, a church that had all sorts of problems, where Paul speaks very highly of that little church of Philippi. He uses them as an example of something to strive for, that in their own poverty they gave for the sake of the gospel. Now, if we read the entire letter of the Philippians, we hear that the church provided for Paul specifically, too. They provided him financial help in the early days of the church throughout the world. They would send money to him wherever he was to cover his travels and to, to provide for meals and to provide for lodging. They didn't look to him as, well, he came and he set this up for us, and so his job is to go elsewhere and set it up for them, and they're responsible for that. No, they too took on the giving for their leader's behalf. They served their leader. They took care of their pastor. They protected, they provided, they prayed for their pastor. They didn't complain or corrupt or condemn. And I think we all should remember that. Your church will continue to thrive in part because you support your pastor. Good doesn't come from being a burden. It comes from being a blessing. And Paul and the church of Philippi were blessed. So does anybody really wonder why Paul would send such an amazing letter full of thanksgiving and adoration? They sound like a great church and worthy of reception. People who would give shirts off of their back, money they didn't really have for the sake of the gospel. Again, a tangible hope. 
The church of Philippi was indeed a great church. They were doing fabulous things for the kingdom of God. They were hosting church in their homes. They were telling the gospel message to any Jew by any river, and entire households were being baptized, were being saved. Monies were scraped together or not going just to my, you know, Lydia wasn't like hoarding all of this cash so she could build a bigger empire. She built an empire for the kingdom of God. When friends near and far were in need, the church of Philippi would help to provide. And yet, hearing all of that, Paul in his letter says, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. He later says, this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness. Let me highlight some of those words will bring it to completion, that your love may overflow more and more so that you may be pure and blameless. Hmm. No matter how good or how loving or how well that church had served, which they had, their work was not complete. They're still in need of Jesus Christ to bring them to completion. Their work was not over. It had just, in fact, begun. And that is the great news. Paris Presbyterian Church is indeed doing great work. Mighty in faith, gracious in giving, purposeful in service, but there is still more and more love to share by the river, to spread into the world. We still need to understand more and more of the scripture. We still must pray more and more for more discernment to know just exactly how and where the Holy Spirit is pointing us. There's this misunderstanding, uh, maybe it's a misrepresentation of the faith of Christians that once converted, once you've been saved, once you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that the work is over. That you've somehow made it. That quite possibly, though, is that gift of grace might have been the easiest thing you've done so far. The hard part is following the point. Following the path of grace. Now, that idea, well, it makes me think of my two dogs growing up. I had two beagles, Dusty and Jake. Dusty was the older one. Jake was the young, neurotic one. Now, just Dusty, he would have been good at following the point of the Holy Spirit. Jake, well, he would have been saved, in our theory, but not all that sanctified. You see, Dusty had early on learned to follow the point. So I would see a piece of bread on the floor, a biscuit that had fallen, his toy in the corner, and I'd say, Dusty, go get it. 
And he literally would follow the line of the point and go get what was on the ground. And poor little Jake, I'd say, Jake, go get it. And every time he stared at my finger, <laughs> he never learned to follow the point. Dusty got all sorts of goods. And little Jake, well, he just stared at my finger. He'd look at it, he'd sniff it, he'd lick it and go, huh? I don't get it. He'd just sit there wondering, she's not doing anything. How is she helping me? And Dusty is off in the corner eating a snack. The Holy Spirit is all around us, pointing in directions. Over there is a Bible study you could join. Over there, there's a woman who needs a shoulder to cry on. Over there, over there, over there. Look, over there. But are we too stuck looking at the finger of God that we've missed where he's pointing? We have to follow the point. The idea that our faith formation is complete at a particular point of time in our life is wrong. That robs us of the opportunity to really grow in our faith, to truly journey with the Spirit. There is always room to grow. There is always something to learn. There is always awe and wonder around us. If you think you understand it, read it again. If you think you know how the church does things, think again. If you believe you have made it, well, hang on, because there's more to make. God's work in the world and in our lives, it grows, it changes, it adapts, it creates. The gospel message does not but how we serve, how we share love, how we go out into the world, who we talk to does. There is a day in which God's work will be finished, and we wait for that advent. But in the meantime, the apostles' beautiful prayer for the church is that love will continue to overflow and lead us to greater knowledge and fuller insight. You, Paris Presbyterian Church, should be excited. You have friends and members and deacons and elders, staff and a pastor who are right now worshiping after a weekend of prayer, of devotion, reflection, and grace. And together they have been praying and discerning the point of the Spirit. They are intentional in learning how to produce a greater, more tangible hope to each of you, to this community, and to the world. Know that the work of the church is never complete, but also know that you are indeed a blessed church. The saints in heaven give thanks each day for your love and for your generosity. And so this Advent Sunday, dear church, hear these words. 
to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at the Paris Presbyterian Church, together with the deacons and the elders, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from our first Sunday together, being confident that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until Advent, the second coming of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am writing sermons or sitting at a hospital bedside, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God, to God be the glory. Amen and amen. Thank you, church.